Hello everyone, and welcome once again to In the Finest Hour, a 40k competitive podcast teaching you strategies and tips you can use in about an hour. I am your host, Sean Morgan, sometimes known as Abuse Puppy, and I have with me as always Shaylin Allen, our good podcast host. Greetings. And Joshua Death, our evil podcast host. Back from the dead. Let's do this. Yeah. See what I, see what I did there? You know, death, dead, you know. I do see what you did there. <laughs> Oh, good. A dad pun already. Uh-huh. He's entitled to make those. He's the only one of us with kids, so... You know, he's got the double thumbs up and everything. <laughs> <laughs> so, there's a lot of tournaments kind of, like, coming up that folks are going to, and a couple really big ones that have uh, gotten a bit of controversy recently, which is a perpetual thing, uh, as I'm sure anyone who's spent any amount of time paying attention to the tournament scene is aware. Yeah, it's like nerds are like, oh my god, you changed the little thing! And, da, da, da. It's, uh, and it's not That's even just nerds. a human it's, reaction, really. Yeah, it's just it's just people. People get angry about everything, and there's always something to be angry about. If you have a room of 100 people and give them all 100 bucks, two of them will be mad. So true. Yeah. But it did highlight something I think kind of important to talk about, and that's tournament transparency. When you're the one running a tournament, you have a tremendous amount of power over things. I mean, it's your tournament. You get to make all the decisions, and you're not actually beholden to anyone. Because, you know, you may feel that, like, hey, I should do what the players want or any of that, but you don't have to. You can make any decision you want. But that doesn't mean you aren't exempt from a certain amount of responsibility because you have a social contract between you and the players. True. Yeah, just like the players have with each other. And that responsibility really comes out when it comes to setting the rules of your tournament. Because you are allowed to set any rules you want, and no one can tell you exactly what to do. Uh, The only thing they can do is just choose not to come to your tournament. And they Mm -hmm. really don't have any other option other than that. But... If you want to come across as a good TO, and if you want players to like you and respect your event, I think that you have a a duty to a certain amount of transparency with your decisions and with the choices you make. And how you wish to communicate those decisions as well. I mean, we live in the age of social media, and I got blindsided at an event once where they had changed something from the previous year, and they told me it was posted everywhere on this one website I never visited. Yeah. I think that communication is the biggest thing. Yeah. Because you may have made that decision six months ago, but if no one is told about that and they have no useful way to find out about that, it doesn't matter when you made it. It matters when they find out about it. Yes. And a good way to post information is to post it in multiple places. So you can get that coverage you need. Yeah. Yeah, and this is why social media, be it Facebook or Twitter or something else, is very useful. You probably have a website for your tournament, since it's pretty easy to do. Mm -hmm. But unless you are Novo or Las Vegas Open, chances are players are not visiting your website that often. Nope. People got other things to do. They don't have time... They go there, they buy their ticket, they don't go back. Yep, that's that's the reality of it. And your website might look great, and it might be really cool and have all kinds of awesome stuff on it. Again, unless you are a 
thousand player tournament, chances are no one is going there. That's just the reality of things. It's not a knock against your website. It's just that's how it that's how it is. People only got so much time to go places, and they're only gonna go places where they are learning new information on a regular basis. Yes. So you need to find ways to disseminate information ahead of time. And the further ahead of time you can do it, the better. Yes, uh, it gives players time to emotionally react and then actually physically react if they're list building. Yeah, because those choices are going to have followed. You can say, well, it's like, well, this is how I've always played. And it's like, well, that's not going to be true for everyone. That may be your interpretation, but it's not necessarily the interpretation everyone uses. And you, of course, have the right to choose that and decide how you want to handle things, and you should, um, don't just leave it to a vote, because voting is not necessarily the best way to decide everything. No. Uh, popularity is not the same thing as effectiveness or correctness. But the earlier you can let people know, the, the more okay they're going to be with it. Because you can say, well, hey, you signed up for this four months ago, and it said right on the site where you signed up, this is what we're doing. Yeah. And then you keep consistent with that. I just went to the Capital City Bloodbath and they had some non-standard ITC changes in there and they had those highlighted in red in the tournament packet. Yep. Real obvious and easy to find. Yes. Uh, because it, at the end of the day, like, there, there's no single right decision about format or anything. It's just a matter of making sure that people are aware of what you're doing when they step into it. Because there are a large variety of tournament formats out there, and they can all appeal to all kinds of different people. As long as people know what they're getting into, they usually won't be mad about it because, you know, they they literally signed up for it. Yes. So those are just, like, good things to do. And also, as a player, if you have a question of something that's really weird and sideways, don't hesitate to ask a TO. Sometimes the TOs can't predict what you need to know. Yeah, absolutely. But, and and this is, I think, something that we have all run into a number of times, if you are a TO and someone asks you a question, it's great to respond to them in a private fashion, but it also helps a lot to make that public if it is a question that someone else could plausibly have. Share that information. Yeah, because, you know, chances are if one person has emailed you asking that, ten more people have thought about it but didn't email you. Yeah, uh, I believe politicians have a thing, like, every time they get called by someone, it's at least ten or twenty people that actually had that opinion but didn't say it. Yeah, at least. And it's, it's going to be the same with anything. You, you have this silent majority. Yeah. On that note of, of messaging and asking the TO questions, one of the ones I want to throw on that, that's it's a big one, is, when you're emailing a TO, if you're emailing a TO because you're, I have this rule interpretation that I want them to rule on, mm -hmm. don't email them like, so what would happen in a hypothetical that if so-and-so was wanting to use this rule and another person, don't don't try and like pull one over on them like you're trying to get them to rule in your favor. Don't, don't try and shed light on it or throw bias to it. Be like, well, I really, you know, this seems... Don't do that because one of two things. One, if you get all elusive about how you're trying to ask your questions, they don't figure out your secret move or whatever, it's likely they may not give you the answer that actually answers your question, number one. Mm -hmm. Number two, you're going to get into the event and you're going to pull out your cool secret move that you're going to do and then the judge is going to be like, yeah, no, <laughs> that's not how I'm ruling that. And you're going to be like, but you said, no, I said this. And so just ask the question. Just ask it clean. Don't be like, don't give an argument. They don't want an argument. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
You're asking them what their ruling is, not what your opinion is. Just give them the question. Give them the, the context of the question. Let them make their decision. That's it. Leave it at that. And I just, I see a lot of people still try and do that. And it's, it, it causes a lot more headache than it helps. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. The TO or judge's decision is final. That's why you took the question to them is you wanted an absolute ruling on the matter. Yes. But that said, if you are a TO and you kind of are abusing this, it's very easy to lose players over this sort of thing. Because there, there certainly are people who will look at your rulings and say like, oh, I don't like that. I don't think I'm going to go. Mm -hmm. So try to make your decisions fair and unbiased as opposed to making the decision that you as a player would want. It's like, well, I don't like Gene Steeler Colt, so I don't think they should be allowed to do this. Mm -hmm. You know, my response to that would just be like, oh, it doesn't matter what you think they should be allowed to do. What does the rule say? Yep. You know, we're not living in 7th edition anymore where there are absurdly broken things regularly making their way into the game. Most of the time it's relatively easy to say, like, well, this is probably how it's intended to work, and it, it's pretty obvious that it does. Mm -hmm. Most rulings I've seen change are in the conservative fashion, so if you just say, yes. well, I'm, I'm not quite sure, so I'm going to just say it doesn't work like that for right now, just to be safe, and then it you get an FAQ two weeks later that says it doesn't work that like that. That's fairly common, yeah. So, I think that takes us over to the main topic of our episode, which is new codexes. New book smell, yay! Yes. Uh, something we've talked about before, but we want to explore in a little bit different fashion this time. Specifically, we want to take a look at how do you deal with a new codex release and, it affect, and how it affects the meta. Because this is obviously something we've dealt with quite a lot, and even though almost everyone has a codex now, and the handful of books that don't are going to be getting one in the very near future, mm -hmm. they are going back and re-releasing some of the older codexes with updates. So we can expect to see a steady stream of new content in the form of codexes, supplements, re-releases, the legends, rules, and whatnot for the foreseeable future. Because, you know, GW needs to make money, which means they need to keep releasing things. Yes, and a lot of these things will apply to also, like, the supplement releases, as Sean mentioned. Yes. We're talking about it in the context of a codex, but it applies to many other types of books which release new rules as well. Yes. So, there, there is a, a sort of process, I think, that most of us go through as a new book is released. Uh, because, you know, the very first thing is that sort of, like, shock and awe, where you just, like, you read through and you're like, holy crap, they can do that? And they get one of those for only 18 points? So, by all means, go through that stage of things. <laughs> because in the course of this discussion, we're going to assume that you have already read the Codex in its entirety and know everything contained therein. It's not necessarily contingent on that, because not everyone has the time to read every Codex, but we're presuming that you at least have a pretty good idea of what's in the book. So after that initial kind of uh, shock and awe phase re wears off after having read the book, we come to the, the point where people actually start trying to build lists with it. Yeah. And I think that's where things start to get interesting, because this is when you start to see people doing a lot of experimenting and brings us to sort of the, the first major phase of things, which is comparing what's good versus what's just new. Because it, it does take some time to differentiate between the two. Yes. 
for example, if they've added a completely new rule that changes how a unit might interact with a certain phase or other unit, then that's a new thing. Mm-hmm. Is it good? We don't know yet. It's just new. Right. Major point fluctuations can also kind of fall in that category of what's new. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's true. Uh, if a if a unit shifts its points from, you know, 16 to 8. That unit requires a reconsideration now. Yes, a significant reconsideration because it's essentially a new unit at 8 points. And usually that significant price change is going to come in combination with rules changes as well. It's very rarely that you see only a price change. Mm-hmm. By the same token, you also see units that go up significantly in points, but gain a lot in the process. And, and that can be very difficult to assess as well, as you have to look at, like, well, okay, this unit went from 32 to 42 points, but they gained a wound, they can reroll charges, blah, 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 etc. Oh, it has an invul now. Right. There's and, and you have to look at a lot of factors. So this initial phase of things is going to be a lot of trying to figure out, are these units actually good? Because that's not necessarily an easy thing to do. Nope. Assessing units is a very, very complex process. And you'll see a lot of folks that say, like, oh, it's obvious that this unit is good. But if you actually go back and look at what people were talking about when the codex drops, which is something we can do now that we have, you know, the internet and archives and, you know, sort of like all of this historical data is frozen in stone. Mm Mm-hmm. You can actually go back and look at what people were saying, and when books dropped, the, quote, obviously broken things were not necessarily the things people were talking about the most. When the Eldar Codex was released, no one was focused on Crimson Hunters. No. No one really cared about them all that much at all, honestly. It's all Dark Reapers. Yeah, and Dark Reapers for a long, like, you know, when they got their their points changes, you know, a lot of people were kind of like, yeah, but they're still bad. Mm-hmm. When Yanari got their changes, there were lots of people, including myself, who were kind of skeptical of whether they would still be a functional army. Mm-hmm. Because they had changed significantly. Even very good players will misassess units, uh, because it is a very difficult thing to do. So the most important thing to be doing at this point of things, because no matter how good at this game you are, you're going to be wrong about stuff and you're only going to have fine ideas, so tap into the collective. Yes, more brains is better. And also, I mean, as someone who thinks sideways, I see things people don't. And things that are not obvious to me are super obvious to you. Yes. And this is where your two best resources are going to be, number one, your friends who play that army. Mm-hmm. Because you probably have at least a couple, assuming you're part of any si- kind of decent-sized playgroup. So you should be able to find someone who plays, you know, the new Tau. And it's like, hey, they just released this supplement. Is any of this stuff any good? What are you looking at? Does any of it get you excited? And they'll be able to say, like, yeah, okay, so they dropped this unit by 20 points but it lost this really important keyword, which means it doesn't work in the army the way it used to, which means it's actually not all that great. Or, contrawise, they'll say, you know, oh yeah, uh, they dropped the unit by a single point, but they now have the option to buy this other thing they couldn't get before, and that was exactly what they're missing, and now they're great. Yeah. 
and having someone that you know and whose opinion you trust to some degree, because presumably having played with and against these people, you know how good they are and can kind of judge their opinions. It gives you a window into what the what people who actually use the book are thinking. Yes. And there are lots of codex reviews from top tier players and stuff out these days that you can also look at as resources. So. Yeah. Uh, I think that's the other big aspect is social media and the internet give us access to an immense wealth of information. There are lots of the high-end players who do codex reviews. There are hundreds, dozens of podcasts and websites that will talk about a new book the moment it is out. Some of them are better than others. Again, use your discretion in which ones you necessarily believe or pay attention to. But these are information you have access to, and they're in many cases, there's, you know, forums or uh, groups or whatnot that are dedicated to specific factions. And obviously, when a new book comes out for one of these factions, these groups are going to go nuts with it. Um, so those are another very good resource that, like, you can look at these specific deep dives of, like, what's good, what has people excited, uh, what are people talking about, what are people not talking about. Mm-hmm. These can all be very good looks into what is what is good with the new book and also what people are excited about. Yeah. And I guarantee you, you're going to find stuff you did not see. Guaranteed. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Because, as Shay said, multiple heads is better than one. There's just too much information for any one person to take in. I remember the one day I pointed out a 7th edition way to key Yanari bullcrap in your own face to Sean, and he was just like, wait, 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 what, 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 what? Yeah, there's always going to be stuff you don't notice, and having other players that look at that multiplies your ability. Now, again, don't take this all as gospel truth. Look at it and say, like, man, they sure are excited about this new flyer. I don't know, it doesn't look very good to me. Follow the conversation, ask questions, talk to people. It's like, hey, you know, this thing only has four shots, and yeah, they're each strength 12 with flat five damage, but it's only four shots, it only kills four orcs. Is this really any good? And try and get into conversations about this sort of thing and look at what players are doing with it and why they think it's good. They may not be right, but it does help you to at least look at their opinions and try to understand why they think why they think what they do. Yeah. And also it's like, well, oh, oh, it has the ability to snipe characters. Well, that suddenly becomes a very different gun. Sure, maybe. There's going to be a lot going on with anything. So this is where you need to be gathering as much information from the people who are themselves aggregating all the information they can as possible. Yes. And you can always try to do a little bit of this yourself. It's not a bad exercise to try. Sure. Um, maybe you even are interested in the book. But one way or the other, you you want to be tapping into these social resources, these communities um, that you have in order to speed up your process of learning. Because you could do all this on your own. If you spent several years with this book, you would come up with every idea that everyone else has already had. They're, it's not going to be that hard. Mm-hmm. But it's going to take you a lot more time. Yep. Uh, last thing is, pay extra attention to stratagems and see if there's been word changes, even small word changes. Oh, Jesus, yeah. And, and the changes are so minute. Stratagems are super important. They are the core of books. Yeah. May versus can, super huge. Yes. Yeah, right. Or, you know, reroll failed hits versus hits. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a lot of these fairly small, and again, this is where the community helps, because they're going to be talking about these changes. There's 
thousands of other people who are all looking at them. But stratagems are a critical part, um, and new and changed stratagems are absolute game changers. Even if every single unit in Codex stays the same, just changing the stratagems can completely change where Codex will sit in the rankings. Yes. Yep. So the flip side of all of this, and this is uh, where we kind of take a step back from it all, is not everything that a changes in a codex is good. Yes, uh, this is where you get to, as I would say in an art analogy, explore the negative space. Where is the sculpture not existing? Right. Uh, because GW has been very good about patching up some of the weird holes and sort of bringing down some of the obviously overly strong uh, options that we had. We've seen it with pretty much every codex so far, where they might have had one really, really, really good thing in the index. That one thing gets brought down while everything else gets brought up. And this is going to be this is going to happen with pretty much every book that gets released. Yes. Uh, if something is getting spammed a lot, it's probably going to be taken down a notch. Yeah. So look at the units that lost out and what sort of tools that denies them um it may be that they now have access to other tools that can fill those roles but uh if your codex was previously defined by a particular unit or handful of units once those become much less viable that is going to change how people are forced to build lists and by the same token there's often things that books are not good at um even with their sort of changes and updates uh specific tools that they lack or limitations inherent to the stuff people are doing that you know were not previously an issue if everyone is taking this great new vehicle and it's super good and it shoots so hard and it's really cheap and all that but they're all taking them in spearheads it's kind of like okay you don't have any troops anymore yeah, or or you've lost command points or something critical like that. Right. So looking at what the book has lost and what it struggles with is another very important part of this. Uh, because very rarely are the changes 100% upgrades and positive. When I look at new books or books I'm unfamiliar with, is I write, I write a list of things that appear strong to me and a list of things that appear weak to me. Mm -hmm. Or holes that are missing. Sure. Uh, because yeah, the the negative space, as as Shay put it, is very important. Because you can you can look at a book like Space Marines and say, well, they don't have any truly cheap screening units. Scouts, sort of, but you know, eleven points per body isn't that cheap. No, not compared to conscripts or grots or something like that. Or you can look at something like Gene Snow or Colt and say, like, oh, they just, they don't really have any tough units. Aberrants are tough compared to the rest of the Codex, but they're still just toughness four with a five-up save. They'll die to bolters eventually. Yeah, exactly. So you can look at these weaknesses and, you know, look at what the Codex has, but also look what it doesn't have. Because that is a big defining feature. It's like, you know, we know Gene Steeler Colt is a glass cannon army because it doesn't have any tough units. It has to be a glass cannon. It has no other option. And that's why we look at things in context of, okay, what's a mid-range unit? What's a short-range unit? What's a long-range unit? What's speed? What's a big tanky unit? Right. We've all mentioned these in previous episodes. Look in context of these objects. Right, well, because it matters what everyone else has in comparison to what you have. So the final part of kind of uh, assessing the book itself and kind of 
looking into what people are going to be doing with it is a trend that anyone who has played the game for any length of time has probably noticed. <laughs> and it's one that I've kind of mentioned before. So there are there is a certain class of player who is going to try certain strategies and bring certain things regardless of whether they're good or not. There are going to be not good players who play the Codex in addition to the good players. And you're going to have to face those players at tournaments too. Yep. So look at the failures of this book and the failures that people are trying to make work. Because there's going to be a bunch of these too. Um, you're, you're Not every list you see posted into a Facebook group is going to be a good list. <laughs> but yeah. those are also important to pay attention to. There, there are sort of like some perpetual uh, candidates here. Terminators? Make Terminators great again. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> no matter what changes, no matter what is altered, there is one guy in the room who, you know, GW will release an FAQ that says, units with fly are not allowed to move over other units with fly in the movement phase. And there's someone whose hand will immediately pop out and shout, this makes Terminators great! Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't matter what the change is, someone thinks Terminators became good. And it's not just Terminators, there's a whole set of these people who each have their own little fetish unit that they really, really want to be good, and every time there's a change, they will insist that this makes the unit good. <laughs> I admit I'm one of these people, I'm just not open about, like telling people that i have the reaction in my heart and then i get heartbroken oh we all have units like that that we hope become good ironclad dreadnoughts but there's some of these players who will <laughs> vehemently insist that and will bring the army to tournaments and try it out so be ready for this kind of class of armies of the these sort of perpetual candidates. Every codex has some of them. You're always gonna see it. Anytime there's a new Dark Eldar book, someone is gonna try and load ten ra raiders full of witches and throw them directly into your face and hope that wins the game. Oh yeah. And it's not going to, but they're still gonna try it. There's always gonna be a guy who tries to build the pure drop pods, nothing else army. These are things people really, really want to work. Yeah, pretty much. And pretty much never have. There's also uh, another class of armies that are probably something you have to be a little more actually careful of, which is gatekeeper armies. Yes, so for context here, these are armies that will win more games than they lose, but will never quite make it to the top. Yes, your your three two and four one armies. Um, yeah, these 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 things that are you know maybe they win an RTT, but they're not winning GTs and they're not winning majors because they just they have a weakness that is too significant, and they just they have to get so lucky not to run into one of those weaknesses before the tournament finishes. It's like I do great unless I face knights. It's like ooh, knights are twenty percent of the field. <sighs> yeah. I could get lucky. <laughs> yeah, it's possible. Uh, but that's why these armies are gatekeeper armies. And when a new book drops, there's going to be some of these gatekeeper armies. Um, they're, they're going to pop out as people are going to build these lists that are very, very, very good at one thing. Yep. But have a giant asterisk next to that that says, we can't do anything else. Because if you're not, and they happen to draw you, they get their advantage. 
And you need to be ready to deal with these armies, even though they aren't good. Yes, you need to be able to deal with the asterisks. Exactly. So knowing what these gimmicks are and how they fail is very important. This kind of combines our first two points. Yeah. Because uh, it's like, what's good? Oh, you know, the units in this army are good. What's bad? Well, the army itself is bad because... And then you fill in the blank there. Um, now, you may put find yourself in a situation where it's like, oh, this army is bad because it's so one-dimensional. And then you actually, like, start breaking it down and realizing, like, oh, wait, it's so good at its one thing, it doesn't matter that it's bad in other places. You know, your your Eldar Air Force, it's like, well, it has bad scoring. It's like, well, that doesn't matter. It just has enough firepower to take you off the table, so it doesn't matter about scoring. Exactly. And it can control your movement so you can't use your scoring. Mm -hmm. So th that is potentially where you need to shift categories in an army, where it's like, if you learn enough about them, it's like, oh, this army isn't a gatekeeper. This is actually a real army. You need to transfer categories. Yes. But looking to exploit these weaknesses and how easily you can exploit them and whether your army is poised to do so is an important phase of this process. Yes. Uh, basically, think ahead. <laughs> yes. That'll be the theme of next part of the episode. Yeah. So why don't we take ourselves a nice little break, head on over to the Quartermaster, and get ourselves something to wet the old whistle. I'm going to get a drink, too. And we will catch you guys all in the second half. Greetings, Wargamers. Let me tell you about the Dots RPG Project. It's a nonprofit organization aiming to create gaming aids such as tactile braille dice and transcribing braille rule books and other gaming aids to help various individuals with disabilities, both intellectual and physical, get into gaming in our local communities. I highly advise sending some money their way. They're doing some really good work. Greetings, Wargamers. We all know that this hobby can run a little bit on the expensive side over time, so I'd like to introduce you to the concept of Mindtaker Miniatures. They buy and sell used miniatures at a very affordable price. They also sell things on commission if you are interested in getting rid of armies you're just not as interested in as you once were before. You can find them at mindtaker, one word, dot org, or on Facebook. Mindtaker Miniatures. We buy and sell used minis. And we are back. And mostly intact. And mostly, I would presume. Eh. So, we've kind of gotten through the basics of looking at the Codex and, and what it does and what you need to know about it. But if you're actually trying to adapt to that Codex and looking at it, you need to be start looking forward. And this is where things actually get difficult. Because following the conversation about people, what, are, what people are trying is comparatively easy. Uh, all you got to do is do some reading. Yeah. But 
the the more difficult part is trying to predict where stuff is going to go. But I think if you break it down into a couple of stages here, it becomes a lot simpler. And I'm going to preface this that these set of stages are really good for just analyzing and beta prediction in general. Yeah. So pay a little extra attention here, because Sean has a really elegant way he's built it out. So the the first sort of level of things is these these sort of like work their way deeper as you go through them is how do the current armies match up against the new book? Which is the the obvious easy step. You look at, okay, here are the armies that people are building with the new book. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's what they do. How do the existent armies, as they stand right now, match up against that? Everyone is bringing assault centurions. Wow, what can those do to the existing armies? And this is very important because although this is in some ways just a thought exercise, is like, what, what would we do if everything stayed exactly the same? The reality is that it takes time to adjust to a new meta, and not everyone can do so instantaneously. Yes, so a lot of the old ideas will come, specifically the SoCal Open right after they altered the fly rule. No one changed their lists hardly at all. People just played with it, as was. Yes. The higher tier players are going to adjust faster to that. Your Nick Nanavadis already have a huge collection of models, and they have the money and time to assemble and paint and whatever, or borrow the new stuff as soon as they need it. So if they drop a new codex tomorrow, Nick probably has all the stuff he needs, or at least access to all the stuff he needs, to have a list ready within a week, two weeks at the outside. But not everyone has that much time to change or build a list because there's a lot of physical modeling side of it. Absolutely. In some of the other podcasts I've I listened to, they talk about hobby lag, which is very real. Most players have finite time they can dedicate to the game, and it takes them a certain amount of time. So you see this over the course of about six months, realistically, wave of changes passing through the meta, usually starting at the top and kind of working their way down. Mm-hmm as players adapt to this new stuff. And this is why it's really important to look at the current lists, because a lot of these players are gonna keep playing the same list because they haven't to have been to an event in three months. And it's like, well, this is the event, the, the list I brought last time, and it worked really well, so it's the list I'm bringing this time. And it's like, ooh, a lot can happen in three months. But for people who are not ear to the ground, hand on the pulse of the meta at all times... They they can't adapt that quickly. It's it's not what they want out of the hobby. It's not what they want to spend their time on. It's not realistic. But you still have to play these people. Yeah. So look at how it matches up against the current books, because that is your very first starting place. Yeah. Yes. And uh, remember to look at some of the more obscure books, because it might be that you find a counter matchup in one of them. It could be. Yeah. Could be. Oh my God! This army's weak to gray knights. Yes, which will happen. But you do need to sort of preface that with uh, how likely am I to face Grey Knights? How often does it show up in the meta? Yeah. Uh, You don't need to focus there, but if you're doing this step properly, you would look at everything. Yes. Realistically, you are are sort of looking at the major contenders and then kind of working your way outward from there. But it is worthwhile to know if there is a player who plays an unusual list in your meta. You know, look at what they do. It's like, hey, how does this match up against the pure corn demons? Yeah. Now, that army might not be very good, and it might be really bad against most things, but you still need to look at it if there's a guy who always brings corn demons to your local RTTs. Yes. 
Exactly. Because your meta is still relevant to you. Absolutely. So once you've kind of covered this initial layer of, you know, how does it match up against the current stuff, you can sort of take things to the second stage down from this, which is how are people going to change to adjust to this? Because just like you, all the other competitive players out there are going to be looking at this new book and saying, ooh, I need to get ready to beat that. So they're going to put their noses to the grindstone and think, 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 and try and come up with ways to deal with this new list. This is where it's beneficial to look into other groups because they are reacting to the Space Marine group and they'll be like... Absolutely. For example, they'll be like, oh man, this new codex does blank really well. But we have this one unit that counters blank really well, so we'll probably see more of the counter blank in the meta. Sure, or, you know, I am bringing a, you know, one of these kinds of lists, my my mechanized list. How am I supposed to deal with this no, new unit that they are fielding? Yeah. And you'll see a lot of this kind of talk. Again, it really does come back around to the sort of social resources that you have. These are the Facebook groups, the group texts, the Discord channels, the the forums, the blogs, the podcasts, all of these things. Most people have a couple armies that they call main, and they will look at this new book in context to how do I deal with it. Mm -hmm. And those are really good, valuable voices to look at. Yes. And it's especially relevant to look at which armies have tools that are extremely effective against this. For example, wow, everyone is bringing the new Primaris Marines. Well, that's great for me because I'm fielding knights and they have the Avenger Gatling Cannon and every failed save kills a Marine. Care that they have two wounds, I do two wounds already. Or your Dark Angel Plasma Spam. Or whatever it may be. So... One of the good starting points is what is very strong against the new things. And on the flip side, what is very weak to it? What armies lack any good tools to adjust to it? Oh man, I got a mechanized list, but this new thing's all about hordes that just walk, lock me up. Right, and you know I'm running this mechanized list, and you know these hordes are a big problem because I don't have any good anti-horde tools in my codex. So seeing what armies lack tools is also going to tell you which armies are going to be getting better and which armies are going to be getting worse. Mm -hmm. uh, because this is what you're looking for at this step, is everyone else is going to be adjusting the same way you are. Some players are going to switch armies, some players are going to change the components of their army, etc. And you need to know which armies are good and bad against this thing in order to know what they're changing. So if you see, like, these, this new codex coming in and it has more bolters than anyone can shake a stick at, you'd better bet that all the guys who are playing armies full of T3 5-up models are going to change things because of those bolters. You might see Chimeras running out to protect the Guardsmen for a couple turns. Could be. Uh, they could be changing to a completely different build that is more mechanized because the Bolters don't work on them. They could be building in buff auras to make the Bolters less effective. There's any number of ways that people are going to change things. But the important thing here is tracking what other people are going to do in order to make these changes. And again, you will want to be trying to look ahead here, ideally. Mm -hmm. The best version of this is looking at what tools people have and saying, all right, I know that with this new book's release, Tau aren't going to be good anymore because of X and Y and Z. 
Yes. So, because of that, you know, I can predicate what I'm going to do based on what I'm expecting to happen. And that's what stage three here is. Once you have figured out where you think the meta is going to go, you build to beat the new meta, not the old one. You get stuck on the old one, you're going to get stuck. Literally, you're, you're, the, the meta's just going to evolve and you're going to get left in the dust. Absolutely. This is the whole playing a step or two ahead of your opponent or a turn or two ahead. Now you're blist building a meta or two ahead. Exactly. Uh, and, and this is where the very top players in the meta are. Um, that when LVO rolls around, Nick Matavati is not building the army that he brought to Nova and saying, well, it was good then, it'll still be good now. Uh, he's saying, all right, I won Nova with this list. Other people are going to build to beat this list because they know it's good. What can I build that beats what they were going to beat me with? Yes. Now, sometimes that may just be, this list is so good, it doesn't need to change. Yanari were in that box for a long time. Mm -hmm. Where people were building to beat Yanari, but didn't matter because Yanari were so good, they could beat the lists built to beat them. Yes. But, on the other hand, sometimes there are very different things where you can say, like, okay, everyone is building to beat Yanari. Well, I'm going to bring a non-Yanari army, or a Yanari army that functions very differently than other Yanari do, because I can nullify their tools in dealing with this. Yes. Alex Harrison's flyer and jet bike list from LVO is a good example of this. It is technically Yanari, but it is so wildly different from standard Yanari that the tools most people are bringing to beat Yanari just don't work against it. Yep. Exactly. And it is also very carefully calculated to beat Orcs, one of the best armies in the meta at that point. So, you need to look at these trends and kind of project where they're going to go, not where they are or where they have been. And this is hard. It's this... legitimately hard, and you'll mess up and you'll fail, because that's yeah. how it works. You're going to be wrong fairly often. This is why this needs to be something you are doing in real time. If you are doing this, then you are kind of working on being that upper 1% of players, and that means doing a lot of research, especially into things like where other people think the meta is going to go. This is, again, where you can really use the extra brains, and in fact, the extra brains are what you need because your opinion of where the meta is going to go is only sort of relevant. Where everyone else thinks it's going to go is also really important because they all get to pick what list they bring. If you think, well, all these changes make Tau bad, but a lot of other people think Tau are going to be really good? Then that's what you're fighting. Yeah, it doesn't matter if you're right or they are, they're still going to bring Tau. Yep. Or build to beat Tau. Exactly. One of the things I'm kind of semi-known for is I don't run... I do not run conventional lists. It's never really been my thing. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, you know, as I do have a team and I have a lot of friends, we'll practice. And when we practice, quite often, my teammates will be like, hey... You know, I need you to, I need to practice against Marines, but bring regular Marines, not your Marines. Right. Because 
they want to experience what they're going to likely face at a tournament. And they're not going to face what I'm bringing at a tournament. And so exactly that. They want the meta. They don't want me. Mm-hmm. You know, and so what? whatever my view is, I like this unit. I don't like that unit. It doesn't mean that's what the meta is, and that's not going to help me at all. I need to see what the global thought process is. Yes. Yeah. And and it really is a global process now. Uh, even though you may have an individual local meta, that is going to be heavily influenced by what other people are taking to big tournaments. Because we are living in this information age where people have access to the lists that just won every major tournament and every GT for the past six months pretty easily, the people in your local meta are going to be looking at that just like you're going to be looking at that. And part of the new meta is going to be the netlisters that get inspiration from those top lists. Absolutely. That is definitely something you can count on. So if you can't beat those top lists, you still got a problem. Yes. Again, just because a list is... A little bit outdated, you know, hasn't won a tournament in six months, hasn't been as popular recently. Don't just completely ignore it, because these changes take time to echo through. The new hotness takes a while to really make its impact fully known. It's gotta get traction. Yeah, we're still just starting to see the impact of the Chaos Knights book nearly three months later. Yeah. People are still looking at what you can do with it. And we're still seeing new iterations of the Orc book, like wholly new lists that have not had significant traction at all, what, like almost a year later at this point? Yeah, and I see new guard lists still. Yep. Yeah. So these sort of things do take time to echo through and happen, and you need to sort of be aware that the rest of the meta needs this breathing time. Now, if you're going to a major event, and you are expecting to face the very best of the players out there, you need to be ready for the very newest lists. Mm-hmm. But if you are going to a smaller event, or if you are just not expecting to play at the top tables yourself you need to give yourself a little more cushion to look at what some of the older lists are as well. And this is where a realistic expectation of yourself as a player does help a lot. Or if you can say, like, I'm a 3-2 player. I, I, I'm not going to take the number one undefeated spot at the tournament. I'd love to, but I probably won't. And then you can say, like, okay, you know, yeah, I do need to be ready for these new fantastic units. They're going to be everywhere, because they will. Everyone loves trying new stuff. Mm-hmm but expect to play a much larger mix of that and the older units. Yes, that was definitely something I had going to Capital City Bloodbath and I was unsurprised for. I played a Hellhound spam list. Sure. Right. That's a thing that, you know, existed and people still presumably have the models for. There's still people running the Castellan plus Guard plus Smash Captains list. I played that too. Yep, it's <laughs> it's still a thing. Yeah, I was say, you did. You played that at CCBB, didn't you? Yep. I hated it. Not because of the opponent. <laughs> well, yeah. And it's not, it's not necessarily that that list is bad, even. It's just behind the curve for where the meta is at and what are, people are building and building to beat. And the meta is very context-sensitive. Yes. Looking at where it's been and where it's going is incredibly important in this kind of attempt to make predictions. Because I also played a Plague Bearer list as well. So sure. There you go. I played a huge run of what, what was popular, 
what mm-hmm. is popular now and something really random from Tao. Right. <laughs> so, do the, the two of you have any thoughts you want to kind of wrap this whole thing up with? We've kind of gone through the, the process that I tend to use, but I know both of you have a little bit different kind of processes going on. Chaelin, you tend to play one specific army, so obviously your view on this is a little different than other people's. Well, I, I look at a lot of, okay, well, how's the new book affect me? So mm-hmm. I'm the person to go to where it's like, do Grey Knights matter against this? And it's like, turns out Grey Knights are pretty good at ripping up Primaris. Sure. <laughs> Not many people know that. Mm-hmm. But the probability of you playing me is very low, especially if you don't live in the Pacific Northwest. Right. But for people who are in your local area or for people who have a Grey Knight player their own or whatnot, you know, again, everyone is looking at the context of the new book from where they are, what they play. So going to players like Shaylin can be very useful to get an alternate take on things. Yeah, and I can tell you it's like, oh, there are a lot of two damage weapons out there. Primaris are still good, but you're going to have to be careful about that because they do drop surprisingly fast. Mm Mm-hmm when hit with the sufficient types of firepower. Josh, how about you? What's your kind of... Do you have any big hints you'd like to drop on people? One big one. Prime example, I literally was just doing the same thing not a month ago, uh, probably a little less, shortly after the Marine book dropped. So you'll you'll pull stuff up and you'll look at it. And you'll look at a unit and you're like, all right, I'm going to put these in the list. And it, it looks good on paper. It looks great. The, the numbers are there. Every, everything looks good. But try it. Put it on the table. Put it on the table and make sure when you put it on the table, obviously, try and make sure it's somewhat of a, again, you're playing for the meta. Build for the meta. Don't be like, I'm going to try this out against my buddy's six-night list. Mm-hmm. Unlikely you're going to face that, so try and give something more of a, a realistic something you might see at a tournament. But try it on the table. I I, I tried three Ironclads just this past you know uh, month. I was like, ah, what, my Ironclads took a massive point drop. Maybe they're good again. Mm-hmm. And you no, know, the answer was no. They're they're not actually very good. But you know, all the numbers on paper looked great. High damage, flat damage weaponry, high toughness. You know, uh, mobility was ish. You know, they they uh, damage shooting. You know, they had all the tools and the numbers were there. But in reality, the just the 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 reality of them on the table wasn't there. So do not be afraid to trial and error, trial and error, trial and error. Just keep doing it over and over and over again. This doesn't work. Try something else. It doesn't work. Try something else. And eventually, you're gonna find that thing. Proxy hammer. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Proxy, proxy everything. Don't buy anything. Proxy it all. Try it out first. Yes. This is such an expensive hobby. Just. Get a friend and play a test game against him with some proxied models or borrowed models or what have you. And if the people at your local store get really pissy about it... <sighs> play on home with shoeboxes if you yeah, have to. Or, or just tell them, like, look, I'm not a millionaire, okay? I, I think this unit looks cool. I want to try it out. Be upfront about it. And most people will be reasonable because they've got to buy models just like you got to buy models. And they'll understand, like, I don't want to drop $350 to try out this new army and then find I don't like it. Yeah. And they'll usually be okay with, like, all right, so these rhinos, they're actually Razorbacks this time. I don't yeah. know if Razorbacks are any good, but I want to find out. And It helps if you take little markers with you that says, I am a Razorback, and you just set out on top of your Rhino. Something like that, or something consistent, or just remind your opponent, or, or whatever it is you got to do. But try all this stuff out, because sometimes the numbers look good, and it turns out they're actually not. 
like Josh said. Mm-hmm. Also, one I've run into a lot of times where a unit looks kind of lackluster, but then you put it on the field and you're like, oh, wait, this does a lot better than I would have thought it does. Yeah. And that's especially the case in 8th edition, where we have so many units that are becoming viable with just very small tweaks. Yes. That's... Comet right now, my own army with the new extra swings on the charge thing. Makes That's no difference. That's four attacks per greenite. Potentially, yeah. It's awesome. With um, the things I'm fielding, that's actually a somewhat noticeable swing in output. Yeah. Units can become viable or become non-viable much more easily because the gaps between them have shrunk in 8th edition. Yep. Yes. Um, so something as small as this unit has a pistol now, sometimes that makes them viable. You never know what really small change is going to be the tipping point for new units. Yeah, and that's why it's good to like be trying new ideas. Absolutely. I just recently had a situation where, uh, when I was actually it was in that that series of games where I was trying out those ironclads. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought the ironclads are going to be amazing; that they're going to be so good. And instead, you know, I happened to throw a couple other things with it to try it out. And ironically, I ended up finding a unit that I really didn't have very high expectations for that just became my MVPs. And I was like, oh, my God. And, and tried them in a couple different variants, a couple different formats, you know, uh, different enemies. And they just were shining. And I didn't even see it. I looked at the numbers. I was like, there's no way this is good. This doesn't seem good. But I have threw it in there anyways because try something new. Mm-hmm. And they wind up being the huge, one huge takeaway. Like, I didn't expect them to be amazing, but after putting them on the table, it really shocked me. So, I mean, it's just that much more evident of put it on the table, try it out, and really see what is or is not actually there. And identify when it's you misplaying something versus the unit actually being bad. Yes, that's a subject we've talked about in other episodes, and we'll probably come back around on again. Yeah, just don't forget that that's a thing you can do, too. Pilot error is a problem. Right. Hopefully this has kind of uh, helped a lot of people get a new handle on the new books we're seeing here. There's quite a few of them being released. Our schedule has not slowed down all that much, despite the length that 8th edition has been going for, and it's honestly not really looking to. So I imagine this is going to be something people continue to struggle with for quite some time. Oh, yeah. If you have questions, comments, thoughts on the topic, you need help with a list of your own, or you just want to chat with us for a little bit as you you have something you're trying out and you're not sure if it works or if someone else has tried it, uh, you can contact us through Facebook, where we are in the finest hour. Uh, We also have a Gmail account, in the finest hour at gmail.com. And if you want to have a little bit more extended conversation and, you know, get in fact in touch with some of the other fans, have them maybe post some memes, analyze some lists, talk about the video games they play, all that kind of thing. For five bucks a month, you can join our Patreon, which gets you access to the private Facebook group as well as the Discord server that we run. You can chat with us all you like, any time of day or night. I would like to say thanks to Dank Muse, who has provided the music for this episode and every episode. You can check him out either on SoundCloud, Spotify, or YouTube. I'd like to thank Rylan Woodrow for doing our awesome iconography and Stephanie Sherman for doing our amazing t-shirts, mm-hmm. which you will hopefully see more of me wearing. Heck yeah. And I definitely would love to uh, extend the offer to anyone that would be interested in wanting to consider advertising or promotions through our uh, the podcast. Do not hesitate. Reach out to us at the previously mentioned email or Facebook groups. All right. I think that wraps us up for the episode. 
So next episode, we will be talking about a somewhat interesting subject as we're going to have a debate on allies. Are they good or bad for the game? Yes. Positions. Everyone take a position right now. I'm going to go with 42. (laughs) Shaylin? (laughs) I'm going to go with abstain. Mm. Ooh, that's such a great night thing. And uh, I am going to point out that the card says moops. (laughs) (laughs) This has been In the Finest Hour. I'm Sean Morgan. Shaylin Allen. And Josh Depp. Thanks for listening.